Welcome to Write Into Your High Calling with author and professor Sherry McGriff. Write Into Your High Calling is dedicated to inspiring you, equipping you, and challenging you to steward the call of writing that God has on your life. So if you're up for it, let's get started. The following episode is from the interview series, Pinning for Purpose, How to Win the Culture War and Bring Hope with Your Writing. It can be watched on rumble.com forward slash C forward slash Write Into Your High Calling or the Write Into Your High Calling Rumble channel. It can also be seen as a free course on the writersacademy.net forward slash pinning, P-E-N-N-I-N-G, which is also where our fiction and nonfiction courses are hosted. So it's an awesome way to watch or, hey, listen in here. Bye. Enjoy the interview. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Pinning for Purpose, How to Win the Culture War and Bring Hope with Your Writing. I know it's a mouthful. I have a great treat for you today. I have Zena Del Lowe, who is amazing. And I first took her classes at the Florida Christian Writers Conference, probably 2018. So you want to listen to her. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Well, welcome, Zena. Say hello first. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here. It's an honor to have you, honestly. I'm just, I was shocked when she said yes. So, okay. So uh, Zena is an award-winning filmmaker at Mission Ranch Films. She's a speaker, a teacher, a podcast host of the Storyteller's Mission, which I highly recommend. Um, she's been in the entertainment industry for over 20 years, writer, producer, director, actress, story consultant, Um She's an adjunct professor at Covenant College and at Regent University in Virginia Beach in the Act One Writing for Hollywood program. She is in development of three feature films. And let me tell you, she knows what she's talking about when she's talking about story and screenwriting and the things, especially the Christian community needs to have in their stories, what they should not have in their stories and how they should not be self-indulgent. <laughs> um, she has award-winning screenplays. She's written comic books, the most recent Strawberry Shortcake. She's won International Short Film Director for Ragdoll, uh, two grand prizes for a Trial by Fire. I know she told me not to read this, but there's, you know, <laughs> she's done so much. Um, but the main mission of the Storyteller's Mission is designed to serve the whole artist and not just do how to and craft, but everything. I mean, we are a whole person. So welcome, Zena. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, when you read all that off, I sound really impressive, but I'm really not that impressive. You know, it's just, um, it's hard. This is a hard business and it's hard to make a living being a writer. And there's, that's partly why I wear a lot of different hats. It's because that's how you, what you have to do to make a living. Well, that's a really great point. Um, so if you're looking to get rich by being a writer, um, don't quit your day job. Yeah, right. <laughs> Many jobs. Some people become very wealthy, but it's very few and far between. Um, so, you know, I, I just read a lot of things about you, but why did you start this podcast? It's a great question, actually. Okay, so... Um... 
it, it requires a two-part answer. On the one hand, I have been teaching for 20 years now. I love to teach. I really do. And I think it's its own area of gifting. Not every writer can teach and not every teacher can write. It's, it's an interesting thing. There are really good teachers who actually aren't writers themselves. And sometimes there are really good writers who can also teach, but not every writer can. And I, so I really feel passionate about teaching. I'm really passionate about the practical things, the things that you can sink your teeth into. I'm not a very big fan of those nebulous sort of uh, ethereal type teaching principles. I want something I can go and apply right away. And I also like to dive into details. You know, I want specifics. And what I've found is that while I do the best I can at the college classes to teach the material as in depth as I can, given the time I have, or at the writers' conferences, there's just more to say. There's more to say that is important to the writers. There's more for people to learn. And also, I felt like what I constantly saw is that there wasn't a place for people that were already good writers to go to get better. Okay. You know, there's a lot of places people can go to get started, to get that new sort of writer, you know, to sort of get the basics, but where do good writers go to get better? So I wanted to write, or I wanted to have a podcast that served more experienced and advanced writers too, where they could still continue to improve their craft because it's something we should always be improving on. And then the last reason that I started it is because I really believe, especially as I've, I, I hope I've matured as a Christian and I've gone through some really dark times in my own faith and my own walk. And as I've come through that, I'm just more and more clear on the idea that as writers, it's part of our healing process as human beings. And we share certain traits simply by virtue of the fact that this has become our creative outlet. And I wanted to speak to that. I wanted to talk about writing from a Christian point of view, because I do believe that that's essential to be the best writer. Frankly, I know that there's a lot of secular people who would disagree, but I think the best writer should be Christian because we have the truest view on reality. We're the ones writing the truth about the world as it really is, about people as they really are, about the way God actually created things. So we should be representing the most true things and tapping into the deepest and most compelling truths that humanity has to offer. And so I'm passionate about that, and I'm passionate about communicating that to writers and then looking at how that impacts us as people. Because if we're not improving as people, then there's also something off. So it's all, you know, we're all, we're, it's, it's kind of a holistic approach, but it's very much craft oriented. But with this holistic approach of we've got to deal with ourselves too. We need to understand who we are. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if we don't allow God to heal us of our own stuff, then that, uh, that comes through the work. Exactly. It's like all the issues that writers in the secular world deal with comes through the work That's and it affects exactly right. or infects or affects, depending on how open you are, 
um, it, you know, it affects you and, and infects you. Um, like my podcast is really, that's why I started mine was about that. It's like, you have to live in holiness. You have to let God heal you. I feel like I could talk about it for an hour. Well, um, and speaking to that too, Sherry, part, part of my point is like a lot of people want to say that the people in Hollywood, oh, they're evil, you know, no, no, they're not. It's that they write what they know and they're doing the best they can to try to work it out because an honest writer is really grappling with those truths. The problem is, is if you have false conclusions about the world, if you've been taught lies, if Satan has deceived you, if you're not in the truth, that comes out in the work, which is why speaking to your podcast here, your, your theme here, changing the battle or winning the battle in the culture wars, it really does start with a true worldview. We cannot change the world unless we have a true worldview and then represent that appropriately in our work. Otherwise, we end up propagating lies and leading people astray. And we can't change things. So my, my tagline is change the world for the better through story. But the point is you can't change the world for the better if you don't know the truth. Well, why is the truth important? Well, isn't that a question that is going around today? Why is the truth important? This is something, it's just so essential to understand. Without truth, there is chaos. There is meaninglessness. Nothing matters. If, if, if there is no truth, then everything is meaningless. Literally nothing matters. Anything you're passionate about, if you don't believe that there's a foundation for truth, that's just opinion. It doesn't actually matter. You're making that up because it's your preference. It doesn't, but it, but it has no objective place in reality if there is no truth. And so a denial of the truth becomes the foundation of everything that makes us human, that makes our lives matter, that makes anything matter. Without truth, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What matters? Nothing. Nothing. So truth is critical to the human experience. Without it, we are truly lost, and we might as well just give up. So for the people, then, define truth. What is truth? I mean, like define it. Like what, what is you truth? Think truth, truth what, is you, what are you saying? Reality. Truth yeah. is what matches reality, the way things actually are. So I'm in truth. in so far as I am accurately reflecting the reality of this world as God actually made it and of, of human beings as they actually are. And so that requires then some understanding of theology. Now, mind you, there are secular people who are still representing the truth because all truth leads to God. And if you're an honest artist, even if you don't know Christian theology, if you're being honest, you'll, you can tap into some deep truths because you can get there. You can because that's part of natural revelation. Um, special revelation gives us extra insight into why those things are truth. For example, as a Christian, I know that the reason that we feel guilty is because we are guilty, because there's a standard of right and wrong that I know that I have violated and God has written that on my heart. And so my conscience 
is testifying even against myself and proving me guilty. Whereas if I'm outside of Christian theology, I might still agree that I feel guilty, but I might think that the reason I feel guilty is because of some socially constructed norm that ought to be rejected and I ought to embrace whatever thing that I'm doing that's wrong. And it's really just I have to get rid of this patriarchal system that has told me that that's a wrong thing to do. Right. And this is what's happening in a lot of ways today. We, uh, we think that we need to cast off the restraint because the restraint that has been put on us was an arbitrary construct that never actually existed or never really had any bearing on reality. But that's where I think <clears throat> the battle is. And then also we we get to see that played out. And I think that's why we see so many trans people, for example, that have trans regret now. Because yeah. they were told that this was going to be the thing that liberated them. They were told that they were actually born in the wrong body. And by God, if they just had a different body, that they were going to experience all the relief. And maybe they even did for a short period of time until enough time passed and they went, wait a minute, now I can't have kids. Wait a minute. This is hurting. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And now they're trying to transition back. That's because they've believed a lie. I had a therapist once who said, we don't have behavior problems. We have belief problems. Mm. And I think that is so true. When we have false beliefs, we always act in accordance with what we actually really believe is true. We always do. And Christians do this all the time. We say, we confess that we think one thing is true, but we act according to what we really believe in our knower to be true. And that's why we can say and all the, you know, we can say with our tongue all we want, I trust God, but then we really prove it in our actions, which by the way, applies to story, doesn't it? Because our characters prove what they really believe in their actions. We're the same, we're the same. Anyway, all this to say, we don't have belief or we don't have behavior problems. That's why it shouldn't be us versus them. We shouldn't think of, you know, it's a belief problem. We have to correct the belief and the behaviors will follow. But that's where it comes again back to scripture. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth doesn't automatically set us free. We have to know what it is and then we can be freed from it. From it. Anyway. Right. And the that makes sense. No, absolutely. Um, one of the things that you've said is that writers have a moral obligation to tell the truth, um, to speak the truth, to write the truth. Like, why? Why do we have a moral obligation? Or what do you mean by that? Thank you. Um, and, you know, a lot of people misunderstand that. They think that I mean that we should all be writing true stories or I had one person correct me and say, that is not the number one obligation of writers. Our number one obligation is to entertain, period. And it's like, okay, yes, we, we should entertain, I suppose. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that the way that you make an emotional connection with your audience is to tap into the truths of human behavior. We know this intuitively. 
we know this anytime we see a character behaving in a way that we find contrary to the way that we believe them to be. If it doesn't mesh, then we get mad. We reject the story. We check out of the story because we're so upset about it because we just don't believe that that character would have done that. We knew that character better than the writer. And why would they do that? And now we hate it. You know, so really we have to tap into truth. We have to. And this also happens if you have a character that has been presented one way and then they do something contrary or whatever, but it's not justified. So always and forever in writing, we are trying to make sure that our characters are acting in a way that is consistent with how we've portrayed them, but is also consistent with the growth that they're experiencing, that is also consistent with the stakes of the piece, and that is justified in the text itself, whether you're writing a screenplay or rather whether you're writing a novel. It always has to be justified, but the truth is essential for us to represent first and foremost, so we can have that emotional bond with the, our audience, but then also so that we don't end up propagating lies. It's a very easy thing for writers to accidentally propagate a lie. And I know that sounds weird, but it's true. Anytime we fall short, anytime we, how do I say this? There's a quote that says, it's not that we tell too much, it's that we tell too little. You know, uh, Christians often will say, well, no sex, no language or violence. But sometimes if you don't show those things, you're guilty of showing a lie. So for example, in Schindler's List, if I tried to tell that story and I took out sex, language, and violence, I'm telling a lie. And yet there is something profound to be gained by telling the truth about that story. The whole truth, the whole truth. Now, conversely, if I were to tell that story, but then I glorified and sensualized the sex, language, and violence, now I'm guilty of lie again. So what is our job? To tell the truth about what really happened, how people actually behaved. One of the ways that they tell the truth in that story, there is nudity. Okay, so this is a classic example of where Christians would have an issue. They would really struggle because, oh, nudity, nudity, we can never do nudity. Well, you needed it in this story. It would have been a lie without it. But here's the thing. When that nudity happens in Schindler's List, it doesn't cause anybody in the audience to lust. It's not used for that purpose. It is used, what's happening is these characters are being put into a corral, naked, where they're running around and they're being sorted. They live, they die. They live, they die. Like cattle and they're naked. And when we see that, that is meant, and it successfully does in Schindler's List, it kills us. We feel their shame, their humiliation, their dehumanization from being in that corral. We feel it. We are not on the side of the uh, German 
the leader, whoever it was played by Ray Fiennes, I forget his character, but who is making those assessments and judgments, we're not seeing it from his point of view as if we're voyeurs and we're also dehumanizing them. We are with them in the corral. We are them. And so we're feeling their pain, their humiliation, their fear. We're feeling it. And the only way that we can then translate that experience and cause empathy to our audience is by portraying that scene correctly. If we had tried to leave it out because we decided we could never do nudity, we would have missed that very amazing opportunity to transform people. Because I'm here to tell you that scene breaks us. And there's no way, unless you're a real sicko already, there's no way you can be like, eh, I mean, they're just Jews. Who cares? Nobody can do that. Nobody can watch that scene and dismiss those people as them. It's us and we feel it. And so it successfully does. So here's, here's the crux of it all. What good storytelling does is it teaches something that is so foundational to the human experience better than anything else, empathy. Good storytelling causes empathy. It is probably the most important human characteristic, the ability to empathize with other people. Without that, we are tyrants. But with empathy, we can have mercy, compassion, gentleness, peace, self-control. Empathy allows for forgiveness. Empathy allows for every fruit of the spirit that exists, but without empathy, we don't know how to get there. It's because God had empathy for us that we're able to experience him the way that he's allowed us to do. So all that to say, storytelling does that, and we have to continually tell the truth, the whole truth, not hide it or shelter our audience in some way, but not also go the other way and glorify something that ought not. That's why we have to know what is true and tell the truth. And I swear, every single time I've done that, all truth leads to God. If it's true, it's going to lead to God, even if God is never mentioned. Because when it's true, it goes past the brain and goes right to our heart. It just affects us on some level that we can't even begin to explain. All truth ultimately leads to God. So we have to trust that and tell the truth. Well. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what about, um, so there's a popular um, Christian movie that came out uh, last year, the year before, and they had a sex scene in it. And um, when I go back to what I said about self-indulgent, when I watched that movie, I don't know if you would want to mention it or not, or if you know what I'm talking about, but when they, when they had that, I was like, this, this is ridiculous. Why? And it went on and on and on. And I'm like, oh my God, it's about Hosea's story. This is ridiculous. You can show that without showing that. It, to me, when I listened to your podcast, it was self-indulgent. Okay. It was gratuitous. Uh, so I didn't see that film. You're talking about redeeming love. 
Yes. Um, I did not see it. It was so a great I, book. I was so excited oh, to see the movie. I, yes. I mean, everybody talks about that book and, and so everybody was pretty excited. Um, I have, again, I have not seen the film, so it's a little tricky for me to speak um, to it uh, completely since I haven't seen it. But here's what I will say. Generally speaking, when I, generally speaking, we don't need to show a lot in terms of sex scenes for it to get the point across or to show the intimacy between the characters. In fact, there are some powerful scenes that are done without ever showing those types of things at all. Um, for example, in um, the last Tom Cruise, uh, not Ninja, what is he? The last... Mission a, Impossible? No, no, no. Uh, it's a, a, a... Oh, Top Gun? No, no, no. I forget what it's called. He's he's in Japan or something. He's uh Oh shoot. I'll, I'll have to think of it. But the point is there was this wonderful scene where he has been uh he killed this woman's husband. And now he's going to battle and she's putting his armor on him. Her, her husband's armor on uh Tom Cruise as he's about to go. And they've fallen in love, but it's, they never touch. Oh, The Last Samurai? The Last Samurai, that's it. I'm like, Ninja, what is it? The Last what? Yeah, <laughs> this, okay. The Last Samurai. It's this power, that's the love scene. Right. The love scene is her putting on the garb without them ever touching. It is so, it's tangible. It is so powerful and you know their love is real and deep and something that most of us would never ever even experience and they never even touch it is a beautiful beautiful scene and my point is it's just really it's really easy to take love scenes too far and also here's the other thing and i often argue this see as as filmmakers we can do things in novels that we can't do on film because we also have a moral responsibility to our actors and our crew. Right. And see, the problem is, is that when actors are simulating these types of sexual encounters, it is a spiritual experience that's happening that could be damaging them there, i have so many stories about this where there are these hollywood actors who have to do these love scenes and they go back to their trailers and they cry and they cry because it's so violating to them but then they try to laugh it off because well you know i'm just being overly sensitive i mean it's just part of the job no you were violated you were violated it was a violation because you your body we are bodies you know our bodies actually are part of who we are and they and react that's they right react. that's right and 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 it and it does something to us so while i haven't seen redeeming love if it went on and on then my guess is it was a violation to the actors too i mean there's only we just don't need that much to get the point across and there are actually more powerful ways to communicate true depths of connection besides sex it we're the ones who have decided that sex is the foundational uh characteristic of showing intimacy 
And yet, really, there's an intimacy that goes beyond sex. So we can allude to sex in a way that is still true and not violate the intimacy that's trying to be portrayed. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, it, it, it makes sense. And of course that's my opinion, you guys. So, and I think they were fully clothed too. It was, um, anyway. Oh, okay. Well, have you ever seen a movie called, um, lost in translation? Sorry, my mic came loose. No, I think I didn't like that one. Okay. A lot of people didn't. I loved it. And part of what I loved about it is that at the time, uh, Sophia Coppola did it. And at the time she was really challenging the status quo. To me, the whole point of that film is she's showing how true emotional intimacy is not found in sex. She completely defies that narrative because Bill Murray's character and Scarlett Johansson's character, they are truly intimate emotionally connected. They get each other on a level that they can't even find with their significant others, but it's not sexual. And yet it's true. And yet we are, we were led to expect, I mean, she starts the movie with, you know, these close-ups on uh, Scarlett Johansson showing her in her underwear and things like this, where we're trained to expect that these two are going to be intimately involved in a sexual way. And yet that would have been a violation to their intimacy. It would have absolutely violated their their true intimacy. And in fact, he does have sex with a different character. And when she shows up, she knows that was fake. That was false. And what is he doing? He's just being fake and false and gross. And she appropriately judges him because they know that true intimacy isn't sexual. And so while sexuality can be a piece of that, I think to speak to your point, we really have to be careful anytime we have sex scenes in movies because of all of those things. That is the easiest one, I think, to totally violate and to go f- past what is appropriate in our desire to tell the truth. But the truth is deeper than what we're probably going to. It's sort of like using the F word. It's an easy go-to but it's not necessarily the right one. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we have to show those things, but sometimes it isn't. It's just the cheap go-to. I completely agree with you. Um, So give us some practical tips. So, you know, the world is on fire. It feels like it literally almost all the time, but metaphorically, Um, everything... uh, in my opinion, that we were ever taught basically was a lie, unless it came from the word, <laughs> pretty much. And that's way, you know, um, from systems anyway. So give us some practical tips as writers, like short term, what are some fo- projects we should focus on? And maybe long term, like what should we be focusing on to get the truth out through um, story, you know, fiction, nonfiction, depending on what you're doing. But Okay, so this is a really interesting question because I've really had to ask myself this. I've had a number of projects I'd been working on, and some of them were uh, more fun, fluffy, you know, just fun comedy type stuff. And I still think there's a place for comedy, although I think the appropriate type of comedy right now is actually satire. There's never been a better time to write satire uh, because 
we have to, sometimes comedy is the only way to jar people into seeing the absurdity of a certain point of view, and satire is designed to do just that. Uh, and I'm not saying that there isn't a place for light comedy. I suppose sometimes we just need that levity because everything feels so heavy. But for me, and I think, you know, this is where everybody, it's, you've got to take it to God in prayer and ask him. I can't tell you, I can only tell you what I experienced for me. I had to reprioritize. I had to look at this world as it is right now, and it's gotten really bad. I mean, it's really gotten bad fast. Yes. We didn't realize when this pandemic hit in 2020, it was like we were pre-pandemic, we were in a different world. Post-pandemic, everything's changed. And it's not just the pandemic, but the pandemic is part of it. But it's the trans agenda now. It's the woke stuff, the critical race theory. It's all of these different things. And it is radically different, the world we live in. Um, in fact, I have to share this one thing. Just before I got on this call, I had invited a particular somebody to be a guest on my podcast. I've started to do some guest star stuff. And this particular person wrote that he supposed that he could maybe do my podcast. And he said, I wish you had not taken any sort of political position decrying Hollywood's wokeness as part of your lessons. One that I saw advertised. I'm very anti-culture wars and such language feeds into it. This should not be us versus them. So, I mean, unless you're planning to lean into more of that, I could maybe do your podcast. So, in other words, it's he's uh, holding, you know, almost hostage. I'll, do, I'll be a guest. And this person's had quite a bit of success. And so, it's like holding it hostage. Like, I'll, I'll be a guest, but if only if you're not going to be more, you know, only if you're not going to be political. And so, here's the thing. I, I read that right before I got on here, and my mind was spinning because... Here's what I'll, I'll tell you as, an, as part of the answer to your viewers. That ship has sailed. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> I'm glad that it sailed for you. It hasn't sailed for everybody, but yes. <laughs> no, it hasn't for everybody, but it has to. And, and again, here's why. It's not about being political. I am not a political person. I have never debated Republican, Democrat, any of those things ever. I mean, when I'm working on film sets, I avoid those things like the plague because if I'm going to talk to people about anything controversial, it's going to be Jesus. And so I've avoided getting into politics completely, but I can't do that anymore and neither can you because now what's under attack is truth. Yes. And so it's not about being political. It's about being philosophical. It's about having the right worldview and, and addressing lies. It's actually beyond politics, far beyond politics. This is, this is what we call spiritual warfare. What's at stake right now in the marketplace of ideas is whether or not truth even exists. We can't sit this one out, folks. We cannot. 
sit back and see how it all pans out. I actually, I went to a, um, do I have this written? Uh, I don't have it here with me. I went to a, uh, a really interesting event recently where the gal who's the CEO of Prager University was speaking. Mm. And she said something that was really fascinating. She, I wish I could get it exactly, so please forgive me for paraphrasing a little bit here, but when she was 11 years old, she and her, or her family had moved to Israel, and she was over there uh, in Israel, and they'd gone to a Holocaust museum. Now, she was 11, and she'd never seen anything. She hadn't heard about the Holocaust. I mean, she was young, you know, and so she was young, and they'd gone to this Holocaust museum and went through it, and they saw... She said that the, the particular Holocaust museum that they'd gone through there was just, it was devastating. She said it's hard for even adults to get through it, let alone kids. I mean, it's just so confusing. And she said, you know, you see these mounds and mounds of baby shoes. You see just everything that you see. She said it was so devastating. And, and when she said, by the time I got done, I was so confused. And I went up to the, the tour guide and I said, how could this happen? How could this have happened? How could people have let this happen? And the guy said something to her that completely changed the trajectory of her life and I think is relevant to us here today. He said, it happened because most people don't fight. They think others are going to fight for them. And by the time they fight back, it's too late. And that is so true. That is so true. We let other people put themselves out there standing up for the truth, right? And then we think it's okay for us to be peacemakers or to not get involved or to be kind and all these things. But we want other people to be out there fighting the battle. We all have to be fighting the battle. We can't let others fight for us anymore. It's not fair. And we will be rolled over. There's not enough of us fighting. No, I, have, I have been so attacked. It's been unreal. And I think I'm pretty fair and careful the way I'm not trying to demonize anybody. I am simply trying to tell the truth and, and engage in meaningful conversation. But I have been so attacked and called all sorts of terrible names. I can do that, though, because I believe I'm called to speak up and to not force other people to have to take those hits. We all have to take the hits. We all have to be speaking up. But we will be beaten if the rest of us stay silent. We will not win. We all have to fight now. So what my friend wants, this not taking any sort of political position, it's an impossibility given what is at stake. And by the way, part of what is at stake is kids being harmed. And this is true. It is just true. And I know that people take issue with that and they think it's lies. No. It is not. You look at the books that are being allowed into these schools or kids are being forced to read. I'm telling you, it, they are being groomed for pedophilia. And I know this 
And here's a, a shocker here. I'm going to drop a bomb on your audience right now. Part of the reason I know that this is true is because I'm an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Not because I was touched, but because I was prematurely exposed to sexual content. That is a covert form of sexual abuse. And it's covert, which means it's even harder to put your finger on. And yet the markers of it follow you all over your life. And so what happens is when, and this is what happened to me, because I was prematurely at the age of four, five, six years old, prematurely exposed to pornography and sexual content that I never should have been privy to. Then by the time I'm in high school, I have a youth pastor who grooms me because I'm now vulnerable to it, because my boundaries are off, because my perspective is off, because I don't have a good gauge in these things, because I have been sexually abused in a covert way, and it has twisted me, because that's what it does. So I'm here to tell you, prematurely exposing these kids to sexual content like they want to do in these books, drag shows, this sort of thing, the whole point of a drag, there is not ever in the history of the world has there ever been an innocent drag show the whole point of a drag show is the same thing that when you go to a stripper club it is sexual that is the point that is the point so you can't have an innocuous drag show it is sexual and content and it violates them it is violating kids there is no room for it it doesn't mean that I'm even saying drag queens are evil or, or anything like that. I'm saying you don't do that for kids. You just don't. If adults want to go to a drag show and be entertained by that, they're adults. As adults, we can handle different things. When I was a child, I thought as a child. When I became an adult, I put childish things behind me. But we are taking adult things and forcing kids to be exposed to them. So we can't sit this one out. We cannot sit this one out. There is no being outside of the politics on this one. We have to get involved. So that is me being very, very passionate about this subject. As for my practical advice, it goes right along with that. I would say, A, figure out what story you're supposed to tell. Now is the time for hard stories. Now is the time it, there's a reaction. Do you see that thumb? That's... I do. The, thumb, the thumbs up. Zoom with thumbs up. I don't know how to get rid of that. That's funny. It's, okay. It's gone now. <laughs> Maybe it's because I raised my thumb and so it showed yeah. up. It saw it or something. I, but... I don't know. Um, so Not the very that. first thing is that you need to figure out what stories you should tell. Now is the time for hard stories. Yes. Hard stories. The honest to God truth. And, and by truth, I mean, you tell the truth about that character. You tell the truth about the human condition. You tell the truth about the world as it really is. There is no room for mamsy pamsy Christian stuff either. There's just no room for this crap that is being peddled in a lot of Christian circles. This pure flick stuff. I'm sorry. There is no room for that right now. You tell the truth. So you figure out which story you're called to tell for such a time as this. And then you fight. 
You don't sit back and expect others to fight for you. You learn how to speak up. You start engaging people and figuring out tactics. You don't have to be a jerk. We're not supposed to be jerks, but we are supposed to speak up and tell the truth. What were your uh, three questions for reframing something when some, like your, your friend who sent you this email, I can only imagine how you respond. I mean, I think you're, you're very nice in the way you respond. I, I, I am not very good at doing that. So, you know, I actually want to uh, write down those questions to help me. <laughs> Sherry, I'm not good at it either. It is not something that comes natural. I panic. A lot of times when I get these sort of uh, messages and my heart races and everything and I have to walk. That's why I taught tactics to help people learn to engage it because I had to learn it so that I wouldn't just be silent because my temptation is to just shut up. And yet there's something in me that feels compelled to respond, but I had to learn tactics. So I and I've written them down, too. There are three questions that can help you navigate almost anything, because here's the truth. If we're trying to, there are the tactics where you can try to shame people back, call people names, do all that. And and there's a lot of people that have resorted to those. And I'm not even going to judge that because sometimes maybe it needs a harsher thing. And I'm just trusting that God is working through them. And maybe, maybe those people uh, doing that at certain times, that will be good. I don't know. For me, what I find is that if I'm trying to actually engage somebody and get them to think, the best way to do that is to ask questions, to get them to question their own suppositions. But I don't avoid making statements either. If I need to, I'll say, you know, for example, I believe that it's wrong to rape children. Do you believe in objective truth? Can you give me one? You know, and for example, here's one of mine. Do you agree with that? Okay, great. Now we both believe in objective truth. The question is, which ones are there? But just a minute ago, you said there wasn't any objective truth, that it's all relative. But look, you actually do agree that it's wrong to rape children. So that's great. What other ones do you think exist? And now all of a sudden, their whole worldview has been challenged because... I've been able to um, ask that question. But anyway, the three questions that I typically ask are, um, number one, (laughs) now I have to think about it. Uh, Okay, number one would be, uh, what led you to that conclusion? You know, what what makes you say that? Um, Another one is just, what do you mean by that? That one is huge. I will use that all the time. What do you mean by that? You know, uh, I've been accused of a lot of things. I've been accused of being a um, con artist, of peddling lies, of being um, my uh, spreading, uh, astonishingly spreading stupidity. Uh, (laughs) I've been accused of being a, um, a white nationalist or a Christian nationalist. I've been accused of being anti-trans. I've been accused of being, uh, uh, you know, like wanting to control people and, and, and make it that other people can't have their beliefs. I want to squelch other people's beliefs. None of that is true. None of it is. But instead of defending myself, 
I will ask questions. Well, what do you mean I'm spreading stupidity? What do you mean by that? How so? Can you give me an example? And then I'll ask follow-up questions. Well, yeah, you're spreading stupidity because you just said that, you know, well, culture is a, a lie and it's true. Okay, well, what leads you to that conclusion? What, what makes you believe that woke culture is true? What is it about woke culture that you think is true? Because what they want to do, and, th and this is really what I'm trying to do, is to get them to make declarative statements. Any declarative statement will do. But they don't make declarative statements, except for the, the statement, you are a bigot. You are bad. You are a liar. You are a hateful person. You are this. You are that. Those are the only sorts of declarative statements they will make. But we've got to twist the narrative and get them to make declarative statements about what they believe. Now we can engage in that. Now we can have a reasonable discussion about the arguments. But until we get it off of the person and they want to just attack and dismiss, until we get it off of us and onto the arguments, there's no discussion that can be had, which is why you don't want to defend if somebody says you are a hateful person. Even there, you don't want to go, well, no, I'm not hateful. I've done this, this, and this. You don't defend. You say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, what, what is it about this that's hateful? Are you saying that it's hateful that I have opinions and I'm expressing them? Uh, what exactly is hateful? Oh, I see. So it's okay for other people to have opinions, but I'm not allowed to? How does that work? And that's the last question is, could you explain this to me? And that's where you're pointing out, even what I just said, it's a paraphrase of that. How does that work? Help me to understand. There's a, there's a lot of different ways to phrase that same idea, but it's basically, help me unpack this. Help, help me understand how this works because you're pointing out the inconsistency, the contradiction in their point of view. Uh, and it works, it really does. So really there's just three questions. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Can you help me understand this? Those three questions, you write them down, put them on a little sticky here. And by the way, I didn't just magically come up with those questions. I read a book by Greg Kokel called Tactics. It's about using apologetics and talking to people about their alternative worldviews. And I've read, I read that years ago, and so I've used those questions ever since. So he's the one who came up with those, but I find that they are really, really useful and in every discussion. So I highly recommend it. And if you have a chance to read that book, it's worth reading too. Well, I, I don't know if I'll be able to read the book, but I will definitely write those down and use them. I've been attacked, I don't know, for the last two, three years, you know, I'm a this, I'm this, I'm that, you know, I'm offensive. I offend everybody. I offend people when I go to the school board. That one was good because, you know, it's on YouTube, <laughs> things mm -hmm. I say. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's awful. It is awful. And it's hard, isn't it? 
Yes, very. I'll tell you what, I've never before had to be so clear on who I am in God. Right. Because there is something, especially as women, we really hate being misunderstood. Yes. Men, and men are better at it, I think. Yes. Men, men don't care as much if they're misunderstood. But we women, we hate it. It hurts us. It hurts to feel so misunderstood, to feel so misjudged. And there is a tendency in us, I think, to, to want to try to explain, no, that's not what I am. No, no, you see, here's what really happened. Like we want, but we want, but, but we can't. And so I've had to really, and, and I hate the term thick skin, because to me that implies being calloused. And I don't think we're ever called to be calloused. I don't think that's what we need. It's not about having a thick skin. It's about having an impervious identity. We know who we are in God. And so I think it's okay to still be grieved by those things. I'm misunderstood by a lot of people and it saddens me, but it doesn't control me. I'm not enslaved to it, and I'm not, well, I guess this is part of control. I'm not going to kowtow to it. I'm not going to cave to it. I'm not going to be manipulated by it. It's still part of the control thing, because that's part of what they want you to do. It's a bullying technique to get you to submit, and we can't. So... I've had to learn to let go. And I've had to remind myself that it's none of my business what people think of me. It's none of my business. What's my business is what God thinks of me and what I think about myself. I mean, I hate to say that like, oh, you know, there's also this craze where we're way too into our self-love. It's just that's a, we've gone <laughs> off the charts in that direction. But nevertheless, there is something to be said for the idea especially in the context of a clear conscience. If I can honestly, with a clear conscience, feel like I've done the right thing, even though other people are against me, but I have followed my conscience, not out of pride, not because I'm too stubborn to change my mind, but because it's truly what I feel called to with God then there is peace in that, even if there is suffering from the world. And I would also, as a final note of advice to your listeners, they should know that we're only going to increase our suffering. I mean, it's only going to get worse for us as Christians. So a staying out of it isn't going to lessen your suffering. It really isn't. And getting into it is probably going to cause some suffering. We're not, we're not getting out of this unscathed, but what we can get out of it is a clear conscience. And that is worth it. There's nothing better in this world than a clear conscience. That's really good. I mean, it, it's a battle of good versus evil. And, it uh, is. And over the last couple of years, you know, you go back, I know we have to get off, um, you go back to the Holocaust, the church didn't stand up, the pastors didn't stand up. Did people, did pastors stand up during the pandemic? No. Not really. No, okay, a couple. 
you know, we have people dying and this and that. Did, did people stand up? Did they kowtow to the government? Yes. That's how it happened. Then that's how it happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I am accused of being political because I am, <laughs> but, um, you know, you're right. We're not going to get out of this unscathed if we don't say anything. It, that, that ship has definitely sailed. Mm-hmm. So we have to, you know, if you save one person by standing up, then it was worth it. Yeah. And, you know, that's why, too, I do think we try to be respectful in it, but we're firm. We can't be weak. The time for the church's weakness is over. We're in this position because the church has been weak for too long. Enough. And let's stop confusing niceness for kindness. Kindness is telling the truth, even when it hurts. That's true. Better are the wounds of a brother. Right? Sweet are the wounds of a brother. I forget that verse. But, you know, like the point is that we need to be honest with people and stop being so nice. Nice is why we're here. Christians, it's time to stop being nice. We still be kind. But kindness sometimes means tough love. In fact, often means tough love. I mean, for crying out loud, look what Jesus said to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. True. This is one of his inner circle. Yeah. So the time, the time is now. We're, we're, we've been weak for too long. It's not too late to, uh, I think, well, I think it's going to just be about maybe holding back the tides for a while. I don't know that we can turn this ship around completely. I don't know. But I know we got to try. And I know there have been other times in the history of the world when it's looked as bleak. And it has, and the tides have been turned. And it's been the church at the center of it. So there's no reason to think that this is any different. The only reason it feels different is because it seems to be happening at a much faster cadence. And everything seems to be coming together at the same time. And it's a worldwide phenomena rather than a localized one like it has been in the past. So there, is, there are uh, reasons here for greater alarm. But that's all the more reason for urgency and to stop being weak. The time is now. We were created for such a time as this. Are we going to be able to stand before God with a clear conscience? That's the question. So. That's good. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> hey. tell, tell us uh, where we can find you, find your work. Sure. Okay, great. Um, if you're interested in following my podcast, I have a weekly podcast, The Storyteller's Mission with Zena Del Lowe. You can find that on the podcast app of your choice or YouTube. Just Google that and you'll find it. You can, of course, follow on social media, anything like that. We send out notices. And, of course, I do have a website, thestorytellersmission.com. So anything that you might want to find, you can just go right to the website and you can find me and the podcast. Would love, love to have people do that. Tell us about your screenwriting class. Oh, okay, great. Um, So if you are a screenwriter, and this is an interesting time because, you know, writers are on strike in Hollywood for good reason. There are really good reasons. 
but it's a great time to train because there's going to be an influx of opportunities. Now there is, you know, so right now it's about preparation. It's about preparation. When this writer strike is over, they're going to be desperate to consume new content. They're going to be looking for things that are ready. And so now would be a really good time to get the proper training so that you can complete a project and have it ready to go when this writer strike is over. So I have a course called Formatting as an Art Form. In my humble opinion, it is the most life-changing course that's ever been created for screenwriters because there's never been anything like this, which is why I created it. It's the most comprehensive course on screenplay formatting in existence. I have some wonderful testimonials from very experienced writers like Susan May Warren, who is an author of over 90 novels. She took the course and she said it is because she wanted to get into screenplay writing. And she said, this is the course that that did it. I mean, she's read books. She's and of course, she's just such an accomplished writer. You wouldn't think she would need it. But no, she needed a course. And mine was the one that made it all click for her. And so things like that are really good to know. It is a really good course. If you're interested, you can find that on the website, but you just go to storytellersmission.com and there's a way for you to plug into the, there's a free training video that you can watch and that will give you a little bit of information about formatting. And then if you're interested, then you can go on and take the course, sign up for the course. It is at an all time low price too. That's the other thing people need to know. It's on sale. Um, so like $600 off the normal price. So it's a good time to take it if you're interested. And I can also send you a link. You can put it in your notes um, section if you want. So people can go click on that link maybe if that works. Great. That would be great. So uh, let me just ask you one little question. Well, I'm go ahead. Have long answers. So I don't know if it's little. <laughs> but okay. I love so for, you know, we, you mentioned Pure Flicks and the screenwriters. Um, what do, what are Christians missing in their movies that they see? And I'm not saying about this about pure flicks and, you know, but there's a lot of Christian movies are very trite. Yeah. What, what are, what are we missing? The truth. Because what's happening is those movies are trite because they're message agenda oriented. What does they're that mean? About, uh, I, I mean, they're, you're trying to teach a lesson. You, the, the writer is entering into the story trying to teach a lesson, trying to show a moral point. They're not telling a story. You're not exploring the depths of the human experience and letting the characters experience the full measure of that. It's contrived. It is very contrived. It's not a story. And it's missing the truth, the depths of it. It's like all of a sudden, if you just believe in Jesus hard enough, you don't struggle with pornography. Nah, -uh. that's not how the world works. That's not how God works. It's a lie. In fact, we cause more damage from that. So we need to free ourselves from things like that and stop preaching. Just stop. If you, you would do more for your writing to go through your story and cut out any point at which you start preaching to your audience and trying to tell them about Jesus. You will do more for your story than anything else that you could do. If you just let the story tell the truth about the human experience, that will resonate with us. 
But that's also why you should listen to my podcast. And eventually, you should take my course on um, character development and structure, because that's exactly the kind of stuff I'm diving deep into to help people avoid the trite, the cliche, the message, the agenda. Just tell the story and make it really true to that character's experience and to the world as it really is. And it will resonate. So that's the short answer. <laughs> Thank you so much, Zena. I, I really enjoyed this and I appreciate your depth of knowledge and sharing with us. So Thank you for having me on. I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. I'm so glad you're doing this show. And I hope that tons and tons of people find it and listen and are transformed by it. I'll be praying for you in this podcast. Well, thank you, Zena. I really appreciate that. Okay, everybody. Thank you for watching. Take action today and rewatch this. I think you really need to rewatch this. <laughs> rewatch this, write down the questions. And so until next time, keep writing and we'll see you later. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you're looking for information on how to write a novel, a memoir, or a nonfiction book, go to thewritersacademy.net. That's right, thewritersacademy.net for details. And until next time, keep writing. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you're looking for information on how to write a novel, a memoir, or a nonfiction book, go to thewritersacademy.net. That's right, thewritersacademy.net for details. And until next time, keep writing.